Well, we're in a series of messages from the book of Psalms, but we have picked out some of the Psalms that were written in a minor key. So this might be new to you because even though it is a song book, the book of Psalms is a song book. There are some of them that are raw and real. And you think about it when you think about any song book, you think about music, there's a musical genre called the blues, right? I got a bunch of it on my playlist. I actually like it. What is that about that we like? We don't want all happy songs. I've got a, a list I call happy summer songs. <laughs> Serious. It's your roll your window down, you know, makes me want to roll my window down, play it loud. But I got a list called the blues and I like it. Mm, I am, troubles are hard. Mm, I am, troubles are hard. Ain't nobody know my trouble but God. Ain't nobody know my trouble. It's about all it says, but I like it. (laughs) Just says it over and over, and I'm like, yes, yes, it's by Moby. And then some beat comes in. But why do we like that? Because they're also, as a human being, you say, I can relate to that. It stirs, it stirs. So the book of Psalms, you may not know this. 53 of the 150 psalms we have are psalms of lamentation, blues. One out of every three is a blues song. Because the book of Psalms is not just the best place to go and get great doctrine about God. It is. But it's also one of the best places to go and to see put on display in living color some of the emotions of the human Heart. When you read the book of Psalms, you get to see and you get to hear real people work their way through the mess of their emotions. And is it not messy many times? It's not clean. You get to hear real people work their way through the mess of their emotions out loud in the presence of God. And what you see is that the Bible does not call us to deny our feelings. It doesn't call us to just vent. Our world says, a little bit, maybe deny it, a little bit, well, just vent. It doesn't go either one of those places. Instead, what you see in the Psalms with their blues is modeled for you the pattern of, here's what you do, pray your feelings out loud and process your emotions in the presence of God. One of those places is Psalm 73. So go there with me in your Bibles and get it marked because we're going to stay there today and next Sunday. There's so much there. I'm going to give it two weeks. We're going to be there today and next Sunday. So get it marked Psalm 73 because we're going to dig into it for two weeks. And I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's word. Psalm chapter 73, standing. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my steps, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious when I saw the boastful. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens. And their tongue walks through the earth Therefore, the people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. 
until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As in a dream when one awakes. So Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Surely, surely, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust In the Lord God, that I may declare all your works. The word of the Lord. And God's people said, you may be seated. Oh, listen to me. It's not a question of if this is ever going to happen to you. What he's talking about here. Not a question of is. It's just a question of when. When. Because the author of this chapter is asking, is voicing out loud a really blunt question that every Christian at some point in a fallen, broken world is likely to wrestle with. And yet sometimes we think, I can't say that. I can't say that. What's wrong with me for even thinking it or feeling it? Is godliness really worth it? Or, to put it another way, is God really good to those who follow him or not? I mean, let's be honest. Look around. Look around. Some really bad things keep keep happening to God's people, don't they? While it looks like the wicked who care nothing about God or the things of God keep doing really, really Well, have you ever had any thoughts like that? Have you ever struggled at all with how wicked people have healthy babies? And sometimes you see wicked people living much longer lives than godly people. And so often it looks like they have so much more of what looks like prosperity and success and blessing and comfort and ease and security while God's people struggle in so many ways on so many levels. And if you haven't had that yet, it's coming. So it's not a question of if, but when. And so here's what I want to ask you and here's what I want to do in these two weeks real question on the table is when it happens to you, are you going to get confused? Are you just going to get confused and be tempted to throw in the towel and walk away from your faith? Or will you know how to work, work through these painful emotions in a biblical way? I think Psalm 73 arms us with everything we need to work through it in a biblical way. And so in the next two weeks, I want to give you four steps, four steps. We'll try to get through two of them today. Four steps that I think can lead you out of the confusion, the emotional confusion that we experience and back into a place of trusting and resting in God. Here's step number one. Number one, 
What we see in this chapter is you've got to admit your doubt. Admit it. Stop pretending it doesn't exist and thinking, well, I can't, it can't, it can't, it can't. Admit your doubt. And then don't wait to unpack it because it always involves more than just an intellectual problem. You've got to admit your doubt. It's only then you can begin to work with this and try to find some solutions as long as you're pretending you're not getting better. Notice the author didn't wait. He didn't wait to wrestle his way through this or pretend it wasn't happening. You say, Brad, how do you know he didn't wait? Verse two, look at verse two. But as for me, my feet had, say it, almost stumbled. My steps had, say it, nearly slipped. He didn't wait until he was completely down and out. What you have right here is someone who is teetering on the precipice of unbelief because he's being so dogged with doubts about God. It's a picture of someone who is losing their spiritual balance. He's dizzy with spiritual vertigo as he tries to wrestle his way through what he knows about God according to the scriptures with what feels like so little evidence in support of it. It's making me dizzy trying to bring these two things together. Here's what I know. But here's what I'm seeing and experiencing and feeling. And it makes me, it throws me off balance. You ever had a time like that in your life? You may be here today and you say, Brad, that's me right now. He says, I almost lost my faith. I was right on the brink of just tossing it all in and walking away. So now, let me insert something here so that too many of you don't exclude yourself and say, well, that's not me. Because you might be thinking, maybe, oh, this has got to be a baby Christian. Who would talk this way? And could... There's got to be a baby Christian who's not plugged into a good church like Grace Fellowship and they're not reading their Bible. They're not even in a small group. No wonder they got to this point. Oh, if that's you saying, baby Christian, not plugged in, doesn't know the scriptures, then you don't know your Bible very well. Because who's writing? Who's talking? Who is expressing all this pain out loud? It's not David. Say it. Asaph. What do we know about Asaph? Well, for starters, he's one of the authors of the Bible. Puts him ahead of you and me. (laughs) He's one of the authors of the Bible. And he he didn't just write this chapter. He actually wrote 12 of the 150 Psalms we have were written by Asaph. What else do we know about him? Asaph was one of the three head worship leaders or musicians that King David had appointed. This is an entire nation of millions of people called the people of God. And there's three top worship leaders appointed by David to lead the people of God in praise. Asaph's one of them. In fact, Asaph performed at the dedication of the temple after Solomon took 20 years to build it. He has a history of knowing and loving God and leading God's people in praise. This would be like our Brad Spence going off the rails and having a crisis of faith. This is not an immature... So here's my... You say, Brad, what's your point? Here's my point. Don't make the mistake of thinking this could only happen to an immature Christian or a novice in the faith. And don't ever assume it could never happen to you. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest you fall. Don't ever assume this could never happen to you. That something couldn't come up in life or some circumstances could not begin that you would find yourself spiritually thrown off balance, staggering, teetering, struggling. Mature believer, mature believer. But he doesn't wait. He doesn't wait and that was wise. But now here's what I want to do. I want to take some time to unpack his doubt. Don't leave it general and fuzzy and nebulous. Even once you admit it, you haven't done enough. 
you just say, yeah, I don't know what's going on. I just feel out of sorts, okay? Good start. Unpack it. And I'm gonna unpack it with you because I see three things that brought his doubt and his confusion to this emotional and painful boiling point. Three things that were happening that are the same three things that I believe still throw us off balance and get us just like it got him. What he saw, he was looking around, what he saw. Number two, what he was personally and painfully in the middle of going through. And number three, something that was raging in his heart besides just sorrow and pain. Let's start with what he saw. Look at verse three. For I was envious of the boastful when I say it. Saw the prosperity of the wicked. He saw something that threw him off balance spiritually. It poked a hole in his airtight theology and faith began to leak out and doubt began to creep in. Oh, he's not a card carrying atheist yet, but he's teetering, he's struggling. He's off balance. And see, it's interesting to me, the first thing to go is not necessarily our theology on paper. We'll hold on to that. It's just that it becomes almost like a hood ornament or parsley on the side of the page plate. It's, we don't believe it anymore. We don't, that's not what we're most frothy over. Because notice how this goes down. He still holds on to sound theology on paper because you see it in verse one. He knows he's got to say it. He's a worship leader. He has a history of God's faithfulness and love and goodness. And he's led others to praise him. So he still says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Yeah. But then he takes 10 verses. I mean, 10 verses 2 through 12 is where he goes frothy. You can, he, you can feel and hear the fury and the emotional torrent. He just unleashes an emo, emotional torrent of what he really thinks and what he really feels. It's almost like one of those moments where here we go. Since I started, I almost can't shut it off. And there's this and this and this and this and this. But we, have we not felt some of the same thing when we look around? I know what I'm supposed to say. I know what the Bible says, and I've said I believe that, but, but. The fact is, let's be honest, right? We do live in a world where proud, self-promoting, ruthless, manipulative, egocentric, and exploitive behavior can make you a lot of money. And can make you successful in the world's eyes. And can help you up, up the power ladder. As you even many times are stepping on what are sometimes godly people on the lower rungs. And so he says, why would a good God allow this kind of injustice? What's going on? Am I following God in vain? Is it worthless trying to be different than the world? Is all this for naught? Why am I even doing this? What about you? Do you see things around you and on the news and in our world and at work and in your neighborhood that gives you spiritual vertigo and throws you off balance? I hope this doesn't freak you out. I do. I do. Been a pastor three decades. And I have moments, yea, verily, I have seasons where I'm thrown off balance spiritually. And I feel my foot slip. Notice the whole imagery in verse 2 is feet. I almost stumbled. I nearly slipped. Because what we're talking about is your foundations of what you really believe. They're supposed to help you face the winds and the storms. I have moments 
where I'm thrown off back. I feel my spiritual equilibrium slosh way to one side. When I stand at the bedside of a dear brother or sister who's watched someone they love dearly, who's way too young, take their last breath. That has never gotten easier for me. Zooming in my car to Children's Hospital and stepping into a room, praise God, in our church, it's usually a room already filled with people from small group and other things. Or at death has taken a young girl, a young boy, a newborn, a husband in his 40s, a wife at 38. This never gets easier for me. I feel it. When I, when I learn of, of some believer, man or woman, faithfully serving God, I mean, knocking it out of the park. You can imagine as, as a pastor, I long to see more of God's people released from the things of this world. Hold it loosely. Live for what matters most. Invest your life in kingdom business. Serve God. Reach other people. And there's so few of them, I think. I'm like, oh, I would. And then one who's living like that is struck down by cancer and dies in the prime of their life. And I'm telling you what, in my thinking, I'm like, God, you know what? Take out a loser Christian who already isn't living for you, gives none of their money away, none of their time. What are you doing? I can help you, God. Don't take him out or her out. What in the world is going on? What what happened? When I hear the godless mocking and shouting and it's getting louder and bolder because it's okay now to be that way. There's no shame. It's getting louder. It's vociferous, the mocking and the shouting from wicked people. And yet they're prospering on a human level here in our world. I feel my foot slip causing me to question some of what I say I believe. When you've lost your spiritual footing, you can experience a kind of disorientation that opens the door for doubt. We're in the Old Testament, so this was written in Hebrew. But it's interesting, in the New Testament, one of the words for doubt is the Greek word dipsychos, that means two psyches. You got two operating manuals. You got two things going on. In other words, like double vision Because when you have double vision, your eye is not seeing clearly or accurately the picture of what's going on around you for you to know where to place your foot. That's the essence of doubt. I'm seeing more than one thing now. I'm thinking more than one thing now. This has gotten very confusing. Doubt. Dipsychos. Doubt. But there's more. It's not just what he saw. And it's not just what we see that brings us to these points. Look at what he was going through. Verse 14. For all day long, I have been plagued and chastened every morning. Is not some of what leads us to these points the fact that it's personal? It's personal. It's personal. And it always is. Our doubts are never simply intellectual problems. It's personal so often is what brought it to this point. And here's what I appreciate. Just like Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12, that was personal. That was painful. Here's a mature believer crying out to God to remove it. I think I could serve you better without it. God says, I'm going to give you grace instead and leave it. We're not told what it was. Same thing's going on here. We don't know what Asaph was experiencing. But we do know this. Look at verse 14. Whatever it is, it's unrelenting. All day long, I am plagued and chastened every morning. It's like he's saying, I wake up every day and I learn something new bad. And it's bad. I didn't think it could get worse, but it is. It is. I keep thinking there'll be some relief, but there's not. I am plagued all day long, chastened every day morning. 
To the point that he actually says in verse 16, this is so unrelenting that it actually now is painful to begin to even try to think about it and process my way through it. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. That doesn't mean the first time he went there and thought, let me think this through. He just gave up quickly. It's that because the pain and the sorrow and the suffering are so unrelenting, he's tried to think his way through this many, many, many times to the point now it just hurts. It's too painful. Too painful. The process of thinking it through is starting to hurt as much as the circumstances themselves. You ever been in a place like that? This just hurts to even try to think it through and reconcile this. It makes no sense. This, I don't know what to do with this. Your doubts are never simply intellectual. They're always personal because they're being fed and filtered through our own experience. Think about it. I'm a pastor and I probably hear it more and get this pushback more than maybe you do, but surely you've heard this. Think about how often you hear someone say, oh, she had a baby die. 10 days old. She doesn't believe in God. She wants nothing to do with God. Oh, he had a father who abused them and then abandoned the family and they struggled when he was 10 years old. He wants nothing to do with God. He doesn't believe in God. Our theology is never shaped in a purely intellectual context. Never. We'd like to think it is because we consider ourselves so rational and logical. We'd like to think it is, but it never is. So don't hear what I'm not saying. There is almost always a real and intellectual question at the heart of most doubt. There is. But doubts never just come through our thinking. They come through our experience. Doubts come when your personal experience makes what your mind knows feel unreal. To your heart. It's this discontinuity. Like it or not, our personal experience impacts the shape of our personal theology. Now, be careful. Don't hear me saying that's the way it should be. Please put together the theology that's based on scripture and your personal experience and see what you come up with. And be authentic. That's what the world would say. Don't hear me saying that's what you should do. Hear me saying, let's be honest and be aware of that is our default setting as human beings. We tend to do that. And so here's how this helps me also as an older pastor now. When I was younger and I would try to talk to people about God, the things of God, spiritual things, the church, Christianity... And I got someone super hostile. Often the really hostile people can seem so confident, so hard, so aggressive, so hostile. And I would just, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. You want to you go there? I can be more. I'm starting off gentle and loving, but hey, take that. And now I've learned, oh, wait a minute. Those that are very hostile, very aggressive seem very confident are often the very ones I've learned if I'll keep loving and I'll stay gentle and I'll keep listening they just might really tell me they are deeply wounded and have been so hurt by some kind of personal experience it's not just that they had a professor at center college that taught them there is no God sure a lot of that goes on but when you add that to a personal hurtful, devastating experience that leads them, leaves them wounded. This is often what you see. I know I'm probably... Wor- the, the person who's been the most aggressive, most hostile, most kind of rude to me that I've ever tried to talk to on a plane was just like this. And I sat down and I began, tried to turn it spiritual. He, he was a burly guy, big buff, a little older than me, but military, military haircut, loud, harsh. He just kept saying, we're not going to go there. We're not going to go there. But then he did. He would go there. But when I tried to give any answer to his objectives, he wouldn't let me go there. What he meant is, I'm going to go there and you're going to listen. And I want to hear any of your answers. But as I listened more, instead of, you know, like grabbing him in a headlock, throwing him in the aisle, which I probably could not have done (laughs) since he's military, 
could have killed me with his bare hands. The more I listened, guess what? He was a medical doctor, psychologist who was in Vietnam. He'd seen atrocities up close. He had experienced things no one should experience, that you shouldn't see, that shouldn't be, that were so disturbing. He's still wrestling with it. He's undone by the way probably he couldn't help as much as he wished he could have helped these others that have been undone. And so he could say, there's no God, there's no God. If there is a God, he owes me an apology. Instead of me, I realized this man is hurting with a personal experience, not just an intellectual objection. People are not nearly as logical as they like to think they are or would pretend to you they are. The litmus test of reality for most people cannot fall outside the boundaries of their own personal experience. Again, don't hear me saying it's the way it should be. It's just the way it is. There's what should be. And then we need to recognize, but what is the real deal with us? So that you can help yourself and so that you can help others. Asaph's crisis of faith had reached this emotional and painful boiling point because of what he saw and because of what he was personally in the middle of going through that was prolonged and really hard. But there's something else at play. There's, there's one more factor that's at play and it often is and it goes ignored. Unrecognized altogether. Look at what's raging in his heart besides just sorrow and pain. He's filled with some sorrow, filled with pain, no doubt. But there's something else raging in his heart. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Do you see something ugly lurking in his heart besides just sorrow and pain? What is it? Envy. And does that not strike you as odd? But that's how we are. We're very odd. You don't have to go to the people of Walmart to see odd. <laughs> Look in the mirror. There's odd. We're all quite odd. He's taken 10 verses like Whitewater Rapids, frothy, to tell you how much he hates these people and what they do. But I want what they have. That life should be my life. I want the kind of power they have. I want the wealth they have. I want that life. So here's the deal. What you need to keep in mind. Your suffering, and it's real, and my suffering, and it's real, is always mixed with our own sinful heart. Don't hear me saying whatever you're going through, it's your fault. I did not just say that. Please, that would be very, 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 very wrong. I'm just asking you to recognize Jesus is the only one who ever suffered and did it without sinning. The rest of us need to be honest and recognize always at play in the midst of our suffering and sorrow and confusion is some of our own sin of what we're wanting or what we're desiring. That very often, here's what's interesting, very often that is what we could control, not these other circumstances. And it's what prolongs our suffering and exacerbates it, the mix of our own sin. So we can never be truly objective and some of our suffering is self-inflicted and made longer and drawn out because of our sinful desires. So number one, if you're here and this is describing you to some degree, welcome, you're in the right place. You're not the first person that ever thought this or felt this or struggled like this. Here's Asaph, mature, believer in the faith. He's led others, he's pointed others He's praised God with others. He's struggling. So, admit it. Don't keep pretending. But then unpack it. Unpack it and get after what is really going on here. How did I get to this point? Step number two. 
Resist the urge to isolate yourself and instead move closer to God and God's people. Oh my goodness, it is such an unhelpful human tendency to think the people of God and the place of worship is where everyone who had a great week and has got it all together and is saying the right thing and feeling the right thing sings together. If you're not, you're going to throw the whole thing off and they're going to say, you're bringing me down. Is that you? Is that you with your doubt and your mess here? Get out of here. We're here to worship. No, 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 no. No. Look at verse 17. Because this is the turning point and the hinge of this entire chapter. Verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. I told you last week, if you were here for our worship prayer time, I was going to study some more and say, is that like an attitude that you could have in a field? Or is it literally, I believe it was literally, literally went to worship. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. He went into the sanctuary of God, to the place of worship with God's people. But we need to understand some more about that. What did he go into the sanctuary to do? Excuse me, to do. Don't make the mistake that sometimes we think, oh, like in New York City, there's some beautiful churches still right down in the heart of Manhattan. And it's such a contrast to all the noise and whistles and dirt and hubbub. And it's one of my favorite things to do is just step in to one of them. They're usually open. And just sit in the back pew and you just think, oh my goodness, what a contrast to our world. And look at the stained glass. I mean, very pretty as opposed to what we have here. The hardwoods and, and just reflect and think and still myself. Okay, there's a place for that. He is not talking about that. He's not saying on his lunch hour, he got over to the sanctuary to sit and rethink this through quietly. How do we know he's not saying that? He's already admitted in verse 16, when I by myself get quiet and try to think this through, it has reached the point that it is too painful. The thinking it through itself is hurtful. It's too painful, too painful. So what did he go into the sanctuary to do? He went there to participate in corporate worship with the people of God. In other words, listen, he went there to not be alone in his crisis of faith. He went there to not be alone while he staggered with spiritual vertigo He knew, I need to lean up against some brother or sister who is not right now staggering. Here's the good news. Will we all stagger at some point? So far, by God's grace, have we ever all staggered at the same time? No. Hallelujah. Even in our marriage, we're so often grateful. When I'm dooby-dooby down, so far I haven't turned to her and she's like, no, yes, kill yourself. That's what I want to do too. (laughs) By God's grace. Every now and then it happens. I'm like, I want to kill myself. Right thing to do? Yes, baby love. Let's go together. Ah! Do it now. Thank goodness she's usually up when I'm down. I'm up when she's down. You got the people of God. You will not find everyone staggering at the same time. And you can lean against someone who presently isn't not, is not. And there may be a time then they need to lean on you. It doesn't mean, let me find that Christian that never staggers. Just let me find the one that isn't staggering now. And here's what he understood that some of you would do so well to come to grips with in your spiritual life. He knew. He said, I'm not spiritually healthy enough to be alone. I need to be with the people of God. That is counter. We tend to think I need to be at a certain level to have the right and privilege to be with the people of God. Otherwise, go sort it out on your own. Lie, 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 lie. You did not get to this point of emotional, spiritual confusion just with thinking and you will not get through it just thinking on your own. You are much more likely to press your way through this confusion and pain and come out the other side whole in community with the people and family of God. Now, let me really tick some people off because I love doing that. 
When I talk about being in community with the people of God, I am not talking about social media. I don't even understand it enough to know tag, post, whatever, tagging things, posting things, having conversations, sentences back and forth, pictures, paragraphs. I'm talking about real people in real time at close range, Christians that you can smell and touch. I'm serious. I was so encouraged. Just today, a woman came up who's been out from surgery, a serious, a serious accident for a long time. First Sunday back, she grabs me and says, oh my goodness, I'm so excited to be back today. There's, there's no comparison to being here. Listening to it online is not the same. I'm like, thank you. I'm going to make a point of that today. With our high-tech society, why don't we just shut this thing down? Why don't we pay for a building and air conditioning and heat? You can do iPods and casts and this and that and the other. And we don't need to come together. God knew you do. You do. You do. To come together. He heard God's word being sung. He heard God's word being preached. He heard God's word being prayed. He could hug, touch. I think they kissed mm, mm, each face. Another believer. Real people, real time. God's people singing, praying, exhorting. See, the world around us and your own deceitful emotions give us all kinds of sense experience that says, God's not real, God's not real, God's not real, God's not real. So you better do something to combat that that engages you in a way that reminds you of something else that is real. There is some truth, folks. Even unbelievers, I want them to come into worship. Do you realize it is a powerful apologetic Every unbeliever doesn't say, look at these stupid people singing these songs as if God is real. I cannot tell you how many unbelievers have said they were impacted by seeing worship and seeing believers and knowing, I think they believe this. I think they mean this. I've had more than one unbeliever who started going to one of our small groups that was smarter than everybody in the room. But it impacted him thinking these are real people with jobs and trials. and They believe this. They believe this. They, you need to be with the people of God and say, there's something else. Me and my pain and my sorrow, I'm coming together with something bigger than just me and my sorrow. Because one of Satan's favorite strategies is to isolate us and to cause you to shrink your world down to the size of your latest sorrow. And no bigger. When you come together with the people of God, it's pushback. There's something else. There's something bigger. Oh, that's right. As I taste the bread and the cup like we did last week, as we celebrate communion together as the family of God, I'm a part of the family of God. There's others here, young, old, black, white, rich, poor, struggling now, not struggling right now. All of us together, this is something supernatural and unusual. We're not a collection because we all just have an affinity for yachting. Or bu- We're so different. How could this have happened? Do we have some problems? Do I have to sort some things out? Yes. But it is still quite amazing to me that we're even together. How in the world has this just not gone with all the diversity? All the, I'll tell you how. Because the gospel is real and God's spirit is real. And we're not just trying to keep church together. If we were dependent on men and women, the church would have been done a long time ago. The reason there's still a church of Jesus Christ is because there's still a Jesus Christ risen and reigning, drawing his people to himself saying, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against. You wanna get, and I know sometimes it's, it's in vogue to diss the local church. Listen to me. You want to get near something that can help stabilize you? Don't run from the church. Come to the church. He said, I'll build my church. He's building something there. There's some, is there mess there? Because you're there. Yes. And I'm there. But he's building something in the midst of that mess. Don't run from it. Move to it. Some of you need to realize I'm not spiritually healthy enough to be alone. I better go to small group tonight because today 
I think I'm that close to being an atheist. I better go to small group. Instead, we stay home and think, I'll watch, I'll watch the Discovery Channel and try to get my thoughts right. Good luck on that. People of God. And here's the deal. When we come, when he went to the sanctuary, he was not chasing after some kind of feeling. Oh, no, no, no. Christianity and Christian worship is word-oriented. If you notice that, especially at our church, we're not perfect, but we try to keep it that way because I think the Bible says it's supposed to be that way. That's why you don't get a 20-minute sermon from me. Not just because I like going on and on, because you need more word. Unpack it, apply it, teach it. We don't need a little ditty, a little inspirational ditty where someone reads two verses and tells two stories and there you go. Not enough. That's why we sing songs that are filled with God's truth. Our worship leaders don't pick a, a song can have a great tune. That's catchy. I like that. Does it say anything good, biblical? No, flush it. Sometimes it actually pains me, a good song that I think, I want us to sing that. But it isn't saying enough good stuff and we let it go. We get people who grab us and say, why aren't we singing it? Some hot song. Because it's not biblical enough. We want to sing truth, preach truth, pray truth, Because listen to me, it's the truth of God's word in the context of God's people at worship that will change you most. Notice what's going on in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I had a feeling like I hadn't had in a while. (laughs) Okay, maybe. He doesn't say that. Then I say it. Say it again. Understood. Listen, would I like some better feelings? Yeah. You'll never have a different feeling until you have a different thought. Our thinking, our mind fuels our emotions. So his, his turning point, I hope he started to feel better. I anticipate he does. But it started with thinking, then I understood, then I understood, then I understood. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not that person that wants to be the frozen chosen Let's just sing truth, but please don't get emotional. I've had some amazing worship experiences, and I hope I have some more. But folks, my life has been dramatically changed by the truth of God's word that has impacted my mind, that has changed me. If you're going after feelings, you'll just have to always chase the next one. Now, I need another kind of feeling. I need that to happen again, right? When you base your life on truth and God's word, so much better. Some amazing experiences and feelings may come, but then I understood their end. We don't come to worship to chase a feeling. Here's what's interesting. As we close, I want you to see what might surprise you because this is kind of gritty and ugly. His condition, right? I want you to see the love of God bumped right up against some of our ugliest moments with what we're saying and actually thinking and feeling and tempted to do next. You would think, does God step back and say, oh my goodness, until you get that sorted out, I can't be near you. This is what begins to dawn on Asaph and we're gonna unpack it some more next week. Oh my goodness, when I was my ugliest, Like a beast before you. Pick it up in verse 21. Thus my heart was grieved. And I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Oh. But what a glorious next word in verse 23. Say it. Nevertheless. That's a word that means. Despite all this. Ignorant. Foolish, vexed, embittered, beastly. You're thinking God said, get away from me. Get help and get it fast. You get this. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. You still get my grip, my grace, my hold. He realizes you never let go of me. Even while I was like this. 
I acted like an animal and you treated me like a son or a daughter. Say, thank you, Lord. Oh my goodness. You say, well, how do I know that's true for me, Brad, in the midst of my mess? Well, please don't drill down into your present circumstances to try to find assurance of God's love. Where do we look for God's love? Where do we find assurance? You look back. The book of Romans chapter eight is another place where they're wrestling with suffering. But look at all this suffering. And Paul doesn't go into the circumstances. He goes back to the cross. How do I know God's for me? How do I know he still loves me despite all this that's going on? How do I know? He's like, he who chose you is sanctifying you, is saving you, is gonna glorify you. And then he says, what shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us how do i know he's for us he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all on the cross how shall he not also with him freely give us all things when jesus was on the cross he's the only one that's ever been truly abandoned and let god the father let go of the son and it's worse than that and then unleashed his wrath against our sin on his son so that he could never let go of us ever. Jesus was let go of and abused and had the wrath of God poured out on him so that you, when you act like an animal and you don't get it right and you don't look like a son or a daughter, you still have his grip. He will not let go of you because he did let go of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Oh God, thank you for your word. And thank you for the messy places that you give us to to help us realize, oh, oh, me too, me too. I'm not outside the bounds of God's grace and help and mercy and comfort. God, thank you for Asaph's raw and real prayer out loud in the presence of God. Oh God, how we thank you that he said it, how we thank you that he wrote it down and how we thank you that your spirit can help us today. Thank you for never letting go of us. Continue your good work in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.